Across America and the world, people this month are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Peace Corps. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Noted travel writer Paul Theroux joins us in just a moment to share what it was like when he joined the Peace Corps back in 1963 to teach English to villagers in Africa. It taught him more than a few unexpected lessons that he'd eventually put to good use in his career as a travel writer. Join the Peace Corps, learn a language, live in a village for two years, then tell me what your views are. And this is why I'm for the Peace Corps. Paul Theroux joins us from his home on Oahu in just a moment. And the New York Times frugal traveler Seth Kugel returns, this time with suggestions for spending less to experience more across Latin America. Spend less, live as much like the people of the country you're visiting, and you're going to end up interacting with more actual residents than hotel staff and tour guides. We're crossing borders to get better acquainted with ourselves in the hour ahead. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. President Kennedy's call to ask what you can do for your country led to the founding of the Peace Corps in March of 1961. Two years later, a student named Paul Theroux signed up to teach English to villagers in Africa. Now, with the perspective of nearly five decades, Theroux is a celebrated travel writer and novelist with a reputation for having a keen eye on the world. He's not known for being shy with his opinions, including what he thinks of today's foreign aid efforts, so it promises to be an interesting journey in just a moment. And for a perspective from a new generation of travel writers, Seth Kugel joins us later in the hour for tips for experiencing some unexpected corners of Spanish-speaking Latin America. When he's not on the road or on assignment for the frugal traveler column for the New York Times, Seth has a home base in New York and another in Brazil. Today he explains how not having much money, especially in parts of Latin America where gringos, even backpackers are a rarity, is a great first step to travel riches. And we'll check in with one of our listeners from Minneapolis for a report on what it's like to travel the world as a single mom with kids. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves by calling Paul Theroux at his home outside of Honolulu as we explore his days as a young Peace Corps volunteer. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Paul Theroux, and Paul's produced some of the funniest, smartest, most cutting and brutally honest books written by an American traveler, and he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Malawi back in the early 1960s. Paul Theroux, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Tell us, what was your work in the Peace Corps, and and how did you contribute? What was the experience like? I joined the Peace Corps in uh, 1963. I had just graduated from college from the University of Massachusetts, and I, I joined up. I was actually in Italy when I was told that I was going to be sent to Nyasaland. I ran and got a map and found out that Nyasaland was in Central Africa and um, was thrilled and then w- went there. And, and I, I was a teacher in a school. Now, that's present-day Malawi, right? It, became Malawi the following year, yeah, 1964 became Malawi. And so we were there as teachers. I was with about 40 people, old and young. Some of them were in their 60s. Now that doesn't seem that old to me, but I was a teacher in a um, secondary school. I taught a lot of different subjects, mainly English, and I wrote my first textbook there with uh, an English guy, uh, we wrote a, a textbook for teaching of English in Malawi, and it was later it was published and, and used. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really started writing. So, so our group was technically called Nyasaland 3. The first groups were called India 1, Nepal 1, Nigeria 1, and then it was 1, 2, 3. So the first group to go to Malawi were, were teachers. Then the second group were lawyers, uh, maybe three or four lawyers, and then our third group. Now the Peace Corps groups are Malawi 26 or, you know, mm. something like that. They, the, the numbers go up. But So I was in the, a pioneer. Now this was 63. You were responding pretty directly to John F. Kennedy's call to service. Do you know, I really wasn't responding to Kennedy's call to service. My impression, first I thought that Kennedy was a very right-wing. We, I was a, an ultra-radical student agitator. Kennedy was not a hero of mine. Uh, I joined the Peace Corps to do something positive, to get out of the country, to avoid going to Vietnam and, you know, ending up dead or doing a, a war that I disapproved of and was campaigning against. The, the idealism was not inspired by Kennedy. It was generated by the temper of the times, very similar to the times now. 
economically, the country was not doing well. It was a have-and-have-not society. There was a, a lot of issues, and racism was one, civil rights. People signing up um, voters in the South were being killed. There was a lot of marching. It was a very, very turbulent time. And so it wasn't a direct response to Kennedy, who I thought was um, a member from a privileged family who had kind of bought the election. Hmm. So Kennedy became a, a great hero in, uh, when he was a martyr, but actually he was deeply involved in Vietnam and um, didn't know how divided the country was, I don't think. Uh, certainly the, the flaming liberals like myself were not on his side. Was it flaming liberals who tended to join the Peace Corps, or did the Peace Corps experience itself radicalize people that just were idealistic and caring people from the developed world? That's a very interesting question, who joined. Uh, some people were inspired by Kennedy, no question. Some people were trying to avoid the draft. Many people in my group, there were black students who were marked men in their towns in the South, in Tennessee, in Mississippi, in Alabama, um, in Virginia, in places where they had no rights or were denied entrance to a lot of, you know, to a restaurant or a movie theater or whatever. And some, they were marked men in the sense of the police in the town saying, you know, you, you're on our list. We're going we're gonna to hassle you. We know you're a troublemaker. It was not a popular thing to either be against the Vietnam War then or to be in the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement became more or less respectable and, and anti-war protests more or less respectable in the late 60s. In the early 60s, you were a pest. A black agitator was a pest. A civil rights agitator was a pest. So they joined the Peace Corps. A fairly high number of gay Americans joined the Peace Corps just to get out because they wanted to just find somewhere, some other place where they weren't observed and they weren't scrutinized, and, and they joined. They actually weren't welcome in the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps deselected a lot of gay students. So I would say idealists, misfits, agitators, you know, in the very early Peace Corps, a lot of people who just wanted to find a place to do something positive and without the scrutiny of the authorities on them. Now, given the fact that Africa appears so many times in your writing, I think you've got three novels set in Africa, and you've written actually about your Peace Corps experience, did your take on Africa and how the first world can help the developing world and so on, did your perspective change from your experience in the Peace Corps? Not initially. Initially, I thought, I believed, when, when a country said we have a five-year plan, we're going to build a, you know, a new road, we're going to improve schools, we're going to increase teachers' salaries and have a clinic, I believed all that. I thought, okay, you mean it. Then I realized that politicians are politicians, uh, no matter where you go. And they just say things. Also in Africa, um, many politicians thought that they had a job for life. The uh, prime minister, later president of Malawi, was there for 30-odd years. He was just anointed president for life, and he was a tyrant. And he had the cooperation of a lot of people. Israel collaborated with him because he was, he was pro-Israel, so they sent a lot of goons to, to train his youth league. Um, Taiwan was uh, a patron, and he just stayed in power. And the United States liked him because he was anti-communist. So my view of aid initially was uh, maybe the five-year plan worked. Then I saw that the, it didn't work. Then I saw that, that people were on the take, and what they needed was an overthrow of the government. I thought that that, that would probably be quite a good thing. You must um, recall that this was also the time of the, uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which you turn the society upside down, send people into the countryside and teach them how to uh, grow food. That seemed, you know, in theory, that's a, a fairly good idea until we found out what the reality of it was, which right. was it was uh, pretty miserable. Well, now, we've got quite a track record uh, since the 60s when you were there as a Peace Corps worker up until today, 50 years later or so. What is the long-term or, or fundamental effectiveness of all this developmental aid that we've sent to Africa? Has it been worth the trouble? It's certainly been worth the trouble if you think that a lot of the nurses that were trained in Africa are now nurses in the United States or in Australia or Europe. And the um, British National Health Service depends on medical staff from, from South Africa and from developing countries. Do I think that it's Well, that's a self-serving kind of... No, no I, yeah. that's what I'm saying. That's, that, that's, okay, but I mean... For, do for I the think it's done much people. good? No, I don't think it's done a lot of good. I, I actually don't. I think that the Peace Corps 
has done probably more than most in terms of educating people and helping in, in small ways. What it's done is it's educated, I guess, two generations of people in what the third world, what Africa, the 53 countries of Africa, are actually like. And I think that we have benefited greatly. The Peace Corps volunteers have benefited greatly. The countries themselves, um, I'm an aid skeptic now. I'm not against aid, but I'm, a, I'm skeptical when someone talks about the five-year plan or eradicating right. uh, malaria. Or when Bill Gates' foundation says, oh, we're going to run the uh, health service in, um, choose a country, choose a country, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania. We're going to help the health service. All I think is, oh, Really? So the Gates Foundation is now the, the health service, so that the Minister of Health is just a fat guy running around in a pinstripe suit in a Mercedes, and you, the Gates Foundation, are helping him run around in his big car because you're taking the responsibility for it. So what can we do? Be constructive. How can we best help Africa if, you know, we really care, but, you know, sometimes we're naive in, in how we might help them? One thing you can do is account for every dollar that you send. The other is not to prop up corrupt governments. If a government is corrupt, you don't help the corrupt health service. You don't help the corrupt educational service. What about trade policy? Well, the same thing. I mean, I, I think if they're crooked, you don't deal with them. This is why the Chinese are so successful in Africa and have been so successful, mm. because uh, they provide rogue aid. They don't care if uh, there are massacres in Zimbabwe. They, in fact, they love tyrants. Most tyrannical governments love tyrants. And so the Chinese love Mugabe in Zimbabwe. They help him. They, they'll build any bridge, providing they can get the gold, the chrome, the bauxite, or the agricultural material out of Zimbabwe. The same with the North Korea. I mean, North Korea and China are great patrons of Mugabe. The Chinese are in Zambia because they don't ask questions. Um, China is a totalitarian country, and so they provide this rogue aid. We're trying to do the decent thing. I think it's, you know, it, it's not an easy, it's not an easy, what do we do? God knows. I, what we, <laughs> what we, but I know what we shouldn't do. I mean, we don't trade with Burma, but China does. India does. Singapore does. Lots of countries trade with Burma. Burma is a tyranny. But, you know, we, we live in a funny world. What we could do is take a firmer line with China. Across this line, you leave us with nothing but a life of hunger and pain. Paul Theroux is our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll continue our conversation with him in just a moment. Then we'll check in with a single mom who shares her tips for traveling the world with her kids. And the frugal traveler suggests how to best enjoy Latin America, experiencing more by actually spending less. Paul Theroux our guest by phone from his home in Hawaii right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're remembering the early days of the Peace Corps and learning of his adventures and views as a seasoned traveler and celebrated writer. Can you make a case, and this wouldn't be a, a negative thing at all, but that Peace Corps helps the volunteer as much or even more than the, the host nation he or she is serving in? Far more. The, the great 
benefactors of the Peace Corps are the Peace Corps volunteers. Why is that? I'm still because they see the world, they, they understand the nature, the difficulty of, of helping people. They see that, that because people are barefoot or live in a mud hut, that doesn't mean they're poor. That's a, a way of life. That's, that's the way a lot of people function. And a mud hut is a more, in many cases, a thatch roof and a mud hut is a sensible thing rather than a, a, a cinder block monstrosity. So that's a radical awareness that a couple of years stint in the Peace Corps gives a young person that they'll draw on for the rest of their lives as citizens of the most powerful nation on the planet. Yes, yes. And I think that if, if Dick Cheney had been in the Peace Corps, uh, instead of just hanging around Washington getting five deferments, Dick Cheney would not be the man that, that he was, the bad advisor, and the person who was leading us into war. He would have seen that, I mean, he was completely wrong about South Africa. Dick Cheney supported a man called Chief Butalezi, Zulu leader, and he said that Mandela was a terrorist and belonged in jail. Well, if he had been in Africa, and, and when I was in Malawi, Mandela was, was in the Rivonia trial, and we were quite familiar with what was going on in, in South Africa and were better informed. Uh, people who stay in Washington and, and don't live for long periods of time, or say two years is quite a good period of time, yeah. they make bad decisions. In, in light of all these ideas, I've often thought that the best investment the other 96% of humanity could ever make would be to give we Americans a trip to the developing world after graduation. Just pay for it. Uh, it might be better if we paid for it ourselves, but I, but I would say that one of, one of the difficulties... But that's one not going to happen. People no, stay home and get happen. another car. So if you had a free trip given you by the people of Namibia, you yeah. might go over there and come back and, and have better empathy, and, and that would actually be a, a kind of a, in the interest of national security as well because we would uh, relate more constructively and, and um, wisely with the, with the rest of humanity. Uh, maybe, but I'm against uh, free trips. I think, okay. the, I think <laughs> the, the, the beneficial thing actually is Living in a country, learning a language. I've, I've recently talked to somebody who is in Afghanistan. I gave a, a, a talk at the University of Michigan, and I talked to a number of volunteers who had been in Afghanistan. And I asked them about the war in Afghanistan, and each of them said pointedly, this war is a mistake. And they told me why. They had lived in different parts of Afghanistan. They had lived there for two years. They spoke Farsi. They, you know, they taught schools. They got to know Afghans. I've been to Afghanistan, too, but just as a backpacker. But they had lived there. One of our problems is ignorance of, of these countries. The Peace Corps really enlightens people. What we're doing in those countries, God knows. I mean, 45 years after I was a teacher in Malawi, training students to become teachers, there are still Peace Corps people in Malawi training people to become teachers. What happened to the teachers? Well, they left, or they don't make enough money. And, and a lot of aid is directed, or charity is directed by people like Bono, Madonna, celebrities, George Clooney, who just parachute into a place, they know nothing about it, they don't speak the language, and they, um, they give you the line, which is usually the government line, because the prime minister tells them to do something. You call them so, mythomaniacs, right? Yes, uh, uh, they are mythomaniacs, not all of them. But Meaning they spread myths that their governments want them to spread? They become no. They kind of it's a it's a self it's a personal myth I think that they develop because when you go to as a celebrity to a country like the Sudan or Kenya or Malawi I only know African countries well but you go there you're I mean you're you're beyond a celebrity you're you're a, you're a hero you're Tarzan you're Tarzan like Muhammad Ali or something exactly well mm. he, he's a very charismatic guy and he he's a boxer and he. I, <laughs> I wouldn't. I don't know what his views about development are, but I mean they're, they're probably interesting. But I, I would. I would set him aside. But I would say that you're an actor. You earn a lot of money, much more than you deserve. You're All Oprah. You, you want to build a school. Yeah, you, but you, your your job is that you recite lines that other people write, and you're handsome, or you're a singer, and you become an expert on development. Give me a break. I would say that join the Peace Corps, learn a language, live in a village for two years, then tell me what your views are on. And this is why I'm for the Peace Corps. For all its you know, shortcomings, the Peace Corps is, is really one of the great ideas in terms of helping Americans understand the world. It's finishing school for a world perspective. 
Yes, finish schools has, has the, uh, <laughs> it's a sort of graduate school. <laughs> graduate school, that's finishing, better. Finishing school that's has, better. Has, the, has, the, has <laughs> it suggests pouring tea and wearing Debut white gloves. Okay, let's call it graduate school for right, a world yeah, perspective. It's, it's sort but, of advanced study, but it's also it's a humble thing. You know, you find out that you're a very small person. You're a very stupid person. You come from a country that makes a lot of mistakes. You have more to learn from the way. This is why. Madonna, who's not married, has a bunch of kids, or you know, these these dysfunctional people go and advise Africans who have coherent families, know how to raise children, and they tend to telling you how to raise their kids. It's 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 ludicrous. Or as I say, they prop up um, the aid props up corrupt governments. And you write but about th- this weirdness in your recent book, Dark Star Safari. Uh, yes, I decided to go from Cairo to Cape Town to look at places I'd never been. And you know, it's it's so good to hear you say after 50 years, with, with your often hard and, and sort of cynical take on things, given your world experience, that the Peace Corps is still a positive thing. And in our country, so much is motivated by national security. And maybe just having a few hundred thousand people that have that passionate worldview, can, you can make a case that that is good for national security. Well, yeah, yes, yes, I agree. I mean, I think, who, who are the people who are getting us into war? People who have not traveled. They're, they're the people who have never been to war. Right. They're people who weren't soldiers. Bush never saw action. Chain never saw action. They don't. They never. They never went. People who who talk about aid and so forth, either for or against it. They really. Mm-hmm. I would only trust the person who'd actually been on the ground. Well, for two years, you get a real education. You know, getting your fingers dirty and and also gaining an empathy for a different cultural outlook. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Paul Theroux as we celebrate the 50th birthday of the Peace Corps. Paul, I'm always fascinated by this famous Thomas Jefferson quote. Thomas Jefferson wrote, Travel makes one wiser, if less happy. Does that resonate with you at all? I think um, partly. Uh, he, he was in Paris, right? So uh, he, I don't know what, he, he had fairly positive experiences in Paris. But um, make you less happy, um, maybe on the ground. I don't think it's about happiness, but I think that it's only in retrospect that you begin to understand the travel experience, in retrospect, when you come back, but when it's recollected in tranquility. Then you see, was I happy? Was I sad? Hmm. Uh, what did I learn? Was it glamorous? And so people tell stories about travel. When you're there, my feeling is travel is an experience of nuisance and delay with you know, periods of enlightenment. But no one can say that, that, that travel is you know, a bed of roses. It's really not. It's a lot no. of trouble. You but could... you've just taught me something very good, the value of reconsidering or, or yeah, re- rethinking your travel experience in tranquility after the case. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's after you come home. That's when, and, and when Peace Corps volunteers come home and tell their stories, I mean Peace Corps volunteers rather than travelers, because the Peace Corps volunteer has been in a place for two years, speaks the language fluently, or should, and has been doing a job. He or she comes home and starts telling his or her stories, and no one wants to hear them. They find that people's eyes glaze over. Whenever I mention this to Peace Corps volunteers, they always say, absolutely right, that's, that's what happens. Because there's so, much, there's so much experience that they're trying to convey, they really can't, they can't get anyone to listen. So we tend to talk to each other. Forty seven years after the fact, I'm still friendly with probably 15 of my fellow Peace Corps volunteers. We meet every year. We have a great time. And um, And 47 years after the fact, you're still sharing the lessons you learned as a a worker in Malawi. Yeah. And we um, give uh, money to good causes in the country, to uh, orphanages. And uh, we talk about old times. And we talk about, you know, we're bonded. We're friends. We're pals. um, We became friends in, in the adversity and fun of, of, of the Peace Corps. I would say that's the souvenir that keeps on giving. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a great thing. I can't understand why more people don't join, and I don't understand why the Peace Corps goes to places like the Ukraine or Poland, but, um, but you know, that's another question. No one's going to ever ask me to, to run the Peace Corps because I'm... I, I'm by the way, I'm not, I'm not negative on this, I, but I'm also... You're not going to get sweetness and light from me because... <laughs> I really Nobody think, looks to you for sweetness. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Paul Through, I just want to thank you so much. You've, you've inspired people through the decades, and I, I didn't realize how, how passionate you were about the Peace Corps and its mission and uh, its long-term positive impact on the very volunteers themselves. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Rick. Happy travels. Thanks.
You can't take a Peace Corps cattle boat to Katanga by the sea. Well, the Mau Mau tried into a true democracy. See the world the Peace Corps way and have your share of fun. Drenched in monsoon, dodging cobras, broiling in the sun. Oh, the Peace Corps marching slow. We enjoy hearing from you by email at radio at ricksteves.com. One of our listeners from Minneapolis contacted us recently to tell us how she enjoys traveling the world as a single mom. And she takes the kids along. And Denise is on the line in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Denise, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Hi, Rick. I just was wondering how many travelers are really willing to travel with young children as single parents? Oh, as single parents with young children, plural. Are you rich or on limited funds? I am on limited funds. In fact, I, I recently did this during the summer with an 11 and a 9-year-old. Okay. Well, you know, it's tough to travel on a budget with kids unless you're going to go the youth hostel route. And youth hostels all over Europe welcome parents with their kids, and you can book triple rooms in the hostels and cook for the price of groceries, and the kids will have a circle of friends at the hostel. That's one option. Denise, your kids are 9 and 11, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a great age to start introducing them to other cultures. And I find it so interesting to look at how kids are a little bit sheltered and sort of ethnocentric when it comes to people who live differently. And when kids at that age get exposed to different foods and different peoples and different dress and different kind of uh, lifestyles, it really opens up their world. And then they have this, this very sort of broad and flexible and uh, curious sort of approach to things that kids that don't have the opportunity to travel never do enjoy. I agree. I agree. And I really witnessed a marked change between before we left on this trip and after. Well, tell me an example. What's a specific example of the change that you saw in your kids after having left our country and come home? Well, we visited a lot of cultural hotspots in France, uh, the Louvre being one, and we looked at each day as an adventure through history. I would give each girl an opportunity to play tour guide for the day. So it was their job to research the facts. We looked on the various websites of the areas that we were visiting, such as the Louvre or Sacre-Cœur, Notre Dame, and it made a lasting impression. It truly did. When they're in school now and they're learning about things, they're able to really connect that history that they actually saw and in some cases were able to touch and experience with their studies. Boy, you sound like a wonderful teaching parent tour guide. I mean, I love that notion of families letting the kids have the responsibility to be the tour guide. And, I mean, it's just so fun to see kids with the guidebook in their hand leading their families through a walking tour of some medieval town in Europe. Oh, yes, it certainly does. It's a great way to engage them and really get them to absorb it. In fact, my oldest was so into this, she was on the floor at the Louvre taking notes in her (laughs) notebook for every exhibit as we did the walking tour. And it's quite economical for families to do this with children at that age because, as you probably know, in France in particular, most of the art exhibits and the educational areas are free to children who are under 12. This is true, and a single room costs almost the same as a double if you stay in a, in a normal hotel, and you can almost always put a third bed in there. If you've got kids that you can smartly let get involved in the itinerary planning themselves so they own part of the tour, they won't feel like they're being dragged away from their friends in their summer vacation, but that they're having a treat for themselves. And they've got audio tours now in the great museums that are designed for kids. So when you pay a couple bucks to get that audio tour at the museum, you can have the adult tour or you can dial over to the children's tour. And that really is a wonderful tool for getting kids turned on to the art. And uh, I think kids get a taste for history and culture and art if they get over there and they have parents that can artfully make that trip enjoyable instead of kind of an obligation. Absolutely, I agree. And I think part of the process needs to be parents need to do due diligence to make it enjoyable, not only for the children, but themselves. Because as we all know, when our children are unhappy, we're miserable. Yeah. And there's ways to do that with guidebooks for kids, for Paris, and for all great sites in Europe. You can find books actually designed so kids can get excited about the sightseeing. Listening to you talk, I can just think of a very engaged 
parent that knows how to be a good tour guide. I remember when we were taking our young kids, your kids' age, around Europe, it was fun to let them get us home on the metro or the subway system, and we'd teach them how it works, and then from wherever we were around town, we'd say, okay, now you guys get us home. Well, that was one of the things. The language um, was one of the key things that I wanted the children to take out of this. Now, neither of them spoke French before we left, and we went to Tunisia in North Africa, whose primary language is Arabic, but the secondary is French. So they really had a lot of incentive to learn. And on the plane over there, we listened to French podcasts that we just purchased at the bookstore. And I would suggest that if you want dessert, which you know how popular that is in Europe and and even in North Africa, you need to order in the language. (laughs) That's a very good incentive. So you did Paris, which is kind of obvious, and then you went to Tunisia. Why did you go to Tunisia, and what challenges did that uh, present you as a parent with with, uh, young and, and precious kids in tow? Yes, it was an amazing experience. I actually have a girlfriend who lives there, so we were invited to stay But we traveled quite a bit when we were there, and we stayed in rented condos that you can get on the beach in Medea. We went to actually five different places, and we used public transportation on several occasions, including the bus and the train. And the reason why I felt that was important is there's a great contrast, as you know, between going to a country in North Africa, particularly Tunisia, which is 90% Muslim, and going to a strong Catholic-based country like France. So I just wanted the kids to get the overall sense of the culture of both cultures and really trigger their minds so they begin to ask questions and become more inquisitive and, and of course, learn the deep, deep history that's rooted in both cultures. And in the country of Tunisia, most people revere America, and they warmly greeted us wherever we went. In fact... By the third day we were there, we were there for three weeks, we were invited to a Muslim wedding, which Hmm. is a pretty big deal. Denise, what indication do you have now, long after that trip, that your kids got anything out of that experience of traveling in a Muslim country? Well, besides the fact that they talk about it all the time, (laughs) it made several, several indelible memories for them, but they are able to compare and contrast. So when they see in the news and they hear flippant comments about a particular culture and its adversity to Western civilization, they're able to drill that down. And they know, even at their young age, that these generalizations don't apply to cultures in broad stroke. And there are wonderful people of all backgrounds and all cultures. And the lack of education is what causes humanity to make those broad stroke judgments, not experience and education. Denise, your kids are lucky to have a mom slash tour guide like you. Thank you for sharing that great example of parenting on the road. Well, thank you, Rick. Happy travels. All right. Bye-bye. Our next stop, Latin America with Seth Kugel, the frugal traveler. It's travel with Rick Steves. Soy Robert Wright, un americano viviendo en Argentina, y yo viajo con Rick Steves. That's Spanish for, I'm Robert Wright, an American that lives in Argentina, and I travel with Rick Steves. Soy Robert Wright, un americano que vive en Argentina, y viajo con Rick Steves. Muchas gracias. <laughs> Seth Kugel joins us to talk about his experience in Latin America. And he writes the Frugal Traveler blog and column for the New York Times. And, uh, Seth, you were given a most incredible gig. Tell us about uh, this assignment you went on. It was indeed incredible. I was living in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I was given 13 weeks to get from Sao Paulo to New York uh, as sort of grand debut of my Frugal Traveler blog. That's 13 weeks on $500 a week. Pretty much any way I could get there, mostly over land, a little bit by boat, and a tiny little bit by airplane as well. So that's like $80 um, a day. Did that include transportation? Yeah, that pretty much included everything. There was one very expensive plane trip I had to take uh, from Colombia to Panama 
that uh, that we exempted from that because there's no way to do that by land. Um, you sound a, a little older than the typical backpacker. Were you doing the backpack route, or is this something that uh, mature travelers could learn from? Yeah, I am. I'd say I'm quite a, a few years older than the average backpacker, and I'm trying to not do exactly what the backpackers do, although I'll say uh, this, I was with a lot of backpackers along the way, and at times I was doing exactly what they did. Uh, there were times when I would stay in hostels, but whenever I could, I'm trying to stay in a pretty reasonable hotel. Um, you know, in Latin America, you can get $30 a night a lot of the time will get you a pretty decent place, and if you're talking about, you know, 70 or $80 a day, that's that's totally doable. Uh, and I also like to get a little bit off that um, that backpacker trail. Uh, you see everyone running around with their Lonely Planet guidebooks, which is a great guidebook. But if everyone's doing it, you're running into the same people all along the way, and you're not running into the people who actually live in the country, which is one of my main objectives always. So a little bit of backpacking, a little bit of, of other stuff. I was just talking with um, another travel writer, Paul Theroux, about his backpacking experiences through Africa. And he really stressed the importance of getting out into the bush and, and not just going from big city to big city. I totally agree, although I also love cities. Uh, I think a good mix of cities and small towns and then I don't guess you don't call it the bush in, in Latin America, but mm -hmm. the savanna or the rural areas or whatever are among my favorite places. There's nothing that makes me happier than being on a dirt road somewhere and just wondering what's coming up next. There's a lot of unpaved roads out there that serve as, as regular roads. What I love to do when I can get up the courage to do it is to just pass by a, a good-looking farmhouse and uh, try to figure out an excuse to go in and, and talk to people. It's a little bit easier if the folks are out working or something like that and you can talk to them. And sometimes if there's a local specialty, like a local liquor that people make at home or something like that, I'll use that as an excuse to say, hey, where can I get some... You know, ah. local rum around here or something. So I do love that. You know, I was traveling with my grandparents a long time ago in Norway, and my grandpa, they, they were too old to drive, so I was their driver. And my grandpa had this great knack of stopping in the middle of nowhere at a Nor Norwegian farm, and he'd go up to the door and he'd say, do you know where I can get a cup of coffee? And, of course, they'd <laughs> say, come on in. And it was just a beautiful entree. And you could do the same thing, I suppose, throughout Latin America. That's exactly right, and I, I absolutely try to do that as much as I can. Absolutely the best travel experiences come from talking to people at random. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes I'm in a good mood when I'm traveling and sometimes I'm in a bad mood. But when I'm in a bad mood, I try to remind myself the way to get out of a bad mood into a good mood is to just be uh, happy and talk to folks and, and get invited somewhere. And suddenly your day turns out to be great. Seth, tell me about just the rudiments of, of finding hotels. If you go online and try to book hotels through standard booking agencies and so on, I feel you're limiting your, your universe of hotel selections. And if you just are walking down the streets of some provincial capital, some moderate-sized town, you'll find plenty of hotels much cheaper, and you can just check them out in person. Did you book hotels in advance on the web, or did you just kind of play it by ear and see what you found as you traveled? No, I, I much prefer your method, but I will say that I did go online and make sure that there were hotels, and sometimes I'd just call up one of them just to make sure there was a room available. Because, for example, when uh, when I arrived in, in one city in Colombia, I happened to get there the very same day a big conference was going on. Yeah. And so all the hotels are, are booked, and you have no way of knowing this. So it's good to check, but then I don't make the, a firm reservation. I don't put down a credit card. You get to these towns, and as long as it's a town with a concentrated center in it, you right. can just walk around and, and ask for hotel rooms. I actually got in a lot of trouble in the blog. It was my most commented piece was when I talked about how to bargain for hotel rooms and how I would go into one of these cities and go to one place and then say, okay, well, I'm just going to check the price at another place. And then they would try to bargain me down, and I'd go to the other place, and I'd basically play them off each other. And a lot of people thought that was a despicable mm. uh, way of stealing money from the poor or something like that. Hey, nowadays, uh, you got to do that nowadays because prices are so opportunistic. They will gouge you if they have the chance. I can't, in my guidebook research, get a firm price for next year anymore because they're going to just go with whatever the market will bear. And the the consequence of that for hoteliers is they're going to get a lot of people shopping around and comparing prices, and they've got to earn your business. Sure. And my argument back was, well, this is exactly what you're doing when you're booking online anyway. Uh, people are putting specials online, and uh, if you're going on to Hotels.com or Priceline or anything like this, there's now an electronic way to bargain between hotels. So when you're talking about hotels that are not online, this is just largely, at least in Latin America, expected behavior. 
that they're going to give you the top, you know, the shelf rate, right, right. and that then they're going to give you a discount when you ask for one. It's just the way it works. I love that idea of just calling or connecting with hotels to see what the availability is without any commitment and then keeping your options open. I, I was doing the same thing. I was very nervous about driving up the Oregon coast on Labor Day or some popular three-day weekend around here, and I was just nervous if there'd be any rooms at all. So I just Googled a couple places and called them, and they said there's plenty of rooms. I just knew that at that point, no problem. I'll be able to stumble in and, and shop around in person. I guess that worked for you across Latin America. Yeah. Once they say you there's plenty of rooms, then you're all set. You can go look for a great bargain, and you always have something to fall back on. All right. If you're a photographer and you just want to go wild, what, what place in your travels from across Latin America did you find the most exciting from a camera point of view? Wow. Let's see. Well, one area of Peru that few people seem to be visiting is a place around uh, the city called Chachapoyas. And it's also fun just to pronounce uh, hmm. Chachapoyas. Chachapoyas. It's on the Amazonian, so the, the rainforest side of the Andes. So it's not exactly where you would find Machu Picchu. It's it's further north. It's lush and there's tons of waterfalls. And I just loved these old ruins called Cuelap, which are just in the midst of being the excavation is still going on. Uh, it's up in the mist up there in the mountains, mm. and it's great landscape. And then it's also these sort of brand-new ruins uh, that are day by day being exposed more and more. Some great, great photography up there. And the name um, of that place again? It's called Quelap, K-U-E-L-A-P, and it's uh, it's easy to Google if you've got the spelling right. Mm-hmm. And the city that's the closest to it is called Chachapoyas, and I went there on a beautiful 24-hour bus ride from Lima, but you can also fly there, I believe. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Kugel, and he uh, was given a wonderful assignment by the New York Times to travel for 13 weeks across Latin America on $500 a week, and you can read about that on his blog or in his column. It's at uh, Frugal Traveler at thenewyorktimes.com, and uh, Seth tweets, and to follow that, it's at Frugal Traveler. Seth, you talked about your hidden gem discovery in Colombia. Talk about that. There's a beautiful city called Popayan. I don't really think it would be a hidden gem if there hadn't been a long-lasting civil war in Colombia, unfortunately, a tragic war that for the last four decades or so has not only, of course, caused all kinds of problems for the country, but has also uh, prevented tourism, more or less. And Colombia is finally getting back on its feet, but Popayan is still pretty far off the beaten path. It's called the White City. It's made almost completely of white stone, or whitewashed stone, I should say, a lot of whitewashed buildings, churches. It's also a university town, so there's a couple of campuses that are also beautiful right in the middle of the city. It's a great culinary town. They have their own uh, regional Colombian style of cooking, great sweets that they sell out on the street. And very, very quiet and peaceful. It's certainly not the place for for partying, uh, but it is a great place just to walk around and feel like, you know, you're the only person there. That's in Colombia, and conventional wisdom is, oh, Colombia is just war-torn with its uh, drug war and everything, and you traveled through Colombia. Is it safe? Is it needlessly reckless for a traveler to go through Colombia? Um, the, the short answer is many, many parts of Colombia are perfectly fine to visit. You do need to be a little careful that you're going to the right places. There are still some parts of the country that are dangerous. But interestingly enough, when we were putting together this map, we actually ruled out Venezuela as a country that was too dangerous to visit and completely left in Colombia. The New York Times has actually written a ton of articles about Colombia recently. In the last four or five years, it is a fantastic place to visit, largely because people are still scared to go there. So you can go there, hmm. and there's nothing to be worried about in most of the major cities and a lot of these smaller areas. There's a whole area called the um, Eje Cafetero in Spanish. It's like the coffee axis or the coffee area, which is absolutely one of the most beautiful landscapes you could ever imagine, just mountains and coffee plants and even some cotton fields in there. And there's around every turn of the highway, there's a different incredible vista that most people wouldn't even think of going to because of where it is. Now, how does the drug war uh, impact these places where you might not want to travel for safety reasons? Is that always uh, sort of related? Sure. Well, I mean, the the drug war and the guerrilla conflict in Colombia are all sort of conflated. I mean, there's no real way to separate them out. So what you're looking to avoid is places where uh, rebel groups like the FARC are active. For the most part these days, those are in very isolated uh, mountain areas. 
But you never know. At some point, um, you know, it could be that for the last few months there's been a few incidents in X or Y city. Usually that's pretty clear if you just, um, you know, check in with somebody before you go to Colombia. But most like places like Bogota, uh, Medellin, which for so many years had a terrible reputation, are both totally fine to visit now. That coffee area, which I mentioned, uh, which is called the Eje Cafetero, which is spelled E-J-E, is also a fantastic place to visit and totally fine. If you're getting a little bit off the absolute main tourist attractions of Colombia, then you want to check with some Colombian or check with the you know the State Department page or whatever, mm-hmm. just to make sure there's nothing that's flared up recently. I've heard nothing but good things about Colombia lately. It's it's um, it's something to be thankful for that Colombia is a safe place to travel and they're getting a handle on this. I'm speaking with Seth Kugel, and Seth's blog is at the New York Times uh, in their travel section called The Frugal Traveler. Seth, is the archive of your blog still available on the New York Times? It's entirely there. It's just you go to nytimes.com slash frugal traveler. And then I think there's still a map up that traces my whole trip. And you can actually go entry by entry and follow me straight from Sao Paulo to New York or in reverse, actually, whichever way you want to go. Now, you were impressed by Guatemala. What impressed you with Guatemala? A lot of places you spend time in claim to have a lively indigenous culture still uh, exercising influence over everyday life. But Guatemala is when you really see this for various historical reasons that maybe I don't even uh, know fully. Indigenous languages, indigenous cultures are still incredibly strong there. I've never been anywhere where kids are running around kicking soccer balls in major cities speaking indigenous languages. I mean, mm. if anything, the cities, you're already speaking Spanish. And kids are also speaking Spanish. Most places you go, indigenous languages are being kept alive by the elderly or mm-hmm. adults or nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. Here you got kids kicking around a soccer ball speaking, I speak Spanish. You have no <laughs> idea what they're saying. Is it fair to say if you want indigenous culture, Bolivia and Guatemala would be two of the best places? Sure. Absolutely. Those are two countries where the indigenous culture is still a part of everyday life in cities and in towns all around. And I also was able to do a a homestay around Lake Atitlan, which is also another beautiful place to visit in Guatemala, in a town that is uh, also heavily, heavily indigenous and still makes its living from um, weaving and and making the fabrics that are famous from Guatemala. And then at the other end of the historic and cultural spectrum, where in Latin America would you find the strongest colonial European culture? (laughs) Uh, I guess you got to say Argentina. I mean, I just was also in Buenos Aires recently, not as part of this trip, but as uh, part of another article. And, you know, you might as well you might as well be in Europe, practically, yeah, that's uh, although it's a mixture of things. Right? They have French architecture, they're of Italian descent, and they speak Spanish. And but, half, half the price of Europe, would you say? Oh, yeah. Uh, Argentina is not as cheap as it used to be. I'd say it probably used to be like a tenth the price of Europe, but it is <laughs> still very, very, very reasonable place to, to travel to. Now, you spend a fair amount of time in Nicaragua. Tell me how that's doing, because we know about its um, civil war and its war-torn past. You know, I find quite often that if you want to find a great place to go travel in, look for a place that was negatively in the news about one, two, or three decades ago, Mm -hmm. because the reputation sticks around and the reality is really, is usually quite different. I wouldn't say that Nicaragua is sort of overflowing with fantastic uh, tourist attractions. There's no Machu Picchu in Nicaragua or anything like that. But it is a beautiful country. There's plenty of things to see. There's beaches. There's surfing. They have this incredible um, double volcano island that is a very popular tourist attraction. So it was great. I actually brought my my parents in for that for oh, that part of the trip. Nice. Uh, my parents are quite adventurous travelers as well. And when I gave them a choice between, you know, Guatemala and Nicaragua, uh, they just said, of course, Nicaragua because it just sounds more exciting. I remember Managua, the capital of Nicaragua, being sort of a city of one million with one or two-story tall buildings. There's only, In my memory, there's only two buildings that stood above all this uh, after the earthquake. There was the Intercontinental Hotel and the Bank of America building, I believe. What's the skyline like in Managua now? Oh, I think you'd recognize the skyline still. The city has been rebuilt in a sort of quite a sprawl, and we didn't really spend any time in Managua except um, for picking my parents up at the airport, mm-hmm. and then we got out of there. It's it's not a real attraction, the capital. You want to get out to the lakes, to the volcanoes. We went way, way up north to a, a wildlife reserve. The other great thing about Nicaragua is it's, it's such a small country, you know, pretty much a few hours, you're you're just about anywhere you want to be except except way out in the east where you have to go by boat. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Seth Kugel, and the New York Times sent him on a mission, 13 weeks to traverse all of Latin America on $500 a week. Seth, can you make a case after your experience that you can experience more by spending less? Absolutely. Every extra dollar that you spend when you're traveling uh, puts up another barrier between you and the people in the place where, where you're living, especially if it's a poorer country. You know, spend less, live as much like the people of the country you're visiting, and you're going to end up meeting more people and interacting with more actual uh, residents than hotel staff and tour guides. And when it comes to travel, a lot of the best seats are free. Tell me about enjoying a sunset. I was in Hikilio, which is way up in northwestern Nicaragua, and didn't even know what to expect when we got up there. It was just the site of the wildlife reserve that I mentioned earlier. was there with my parents, and uh, we checked into a very, very low-end uh, hotel, and then they said, hey, why don't you guys walk out to the, the beach there? you got to see the sunset. And every night, you walk out there, and it's, it's just absolutely spectacular vast sunset that you're sharing with just about nobody. There was a few dogs running around on the beach, and then maybe some of the neighbors were there too, and uh, just me and and my parents having a little bonding session out there, which uh, was, as you said, absolutely, completely free. That's one of the marks of a great trip, is when the sunset becomes an event. Seth, uh, your travels, I'm sure, relied on your linguistic skills. You were fortunate to speak Spanish. What's a handy phrase that we should all have in our Spanish arsenal when we're traveling through Latin America? I love to be a little bit formal at times, and one thing I like to say instead of saying gracias for thank you is to say muy amable, muy amable, very kind of you. Mix it up a little bit with the with the gracias. Muy amable. What is that literally? It means like, oh, very amiable of you. Ah, right. Seth Kugel, New York Times frugal traveler, thanks a lot for the uh, insight into your experience and uh, the inspiration. It was my pleasure. Hi, hi, hi. Have you ever danced in the tropics? In that hazy, lazy light, kind of crazy like South American rain. Hi, 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 hi. Have you ever kissed in the moonlight? In the grand and glorious, gay, notorious South American rain. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help to Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their production help today. In South America, The conversation continues online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.